When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. Chris, good morning. Morning, Reggie. Lovely to be with you. Lovely to be with you. Now, here's something that's a priority, or it should be a priority, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. Are there new developments in the fight against malaria? Yes, that's right. So researchers at Imperial College in London have found a way of breeding mosquitoes so that they only produce male mosquitoes. And this works by them engineering in technology into the uh, or genetic modifications into the mosquitoes so that the chromosome which makes a mosquito become female is lost. And why this is useful is that the female mosquitoes are the ones that do the biting, they drink the blood meal and in the process pass on diseases like malaria. And if you therefore reduce the population number of females, then the transmission cycle is vastly reduced. And so this technology means we've got a way of keeping the numbers of um, females in the population at very low levels. Therefore, the transmission cycle of malaria will break down. And this means the number of people who are actively infected with malaria in the population will plummet. And then even though the mosquito numbers will come back up later probably, then actually there'll be so little malaria circulating in the population that it won't be able to re-establish a transmission cycle. That's the theory, that's the hope. And we know this can sort of work because it's been done in other countries in the past. So there'll obviously be lots of checks and steps to do ahead of releasing these mosquitoes, but it's certainly encouraging because mosquitoes mm-hmm. are probably the most dangerous animal on Earth because they transmit millions of cases of malaria and the annual death toll is about 600,000 at the moment. Mm-hmm. Okay, so easy to underestimate because of their size, but uh, their impact, absolutely. Right, our lines are open for you on 021-446-0567, We're taking your SMSs on 31702 and 31567. And Chris, you know, it does sound obvious, but now that we are talking about malaria, there are still people uh, who, who die of malaria, don't know how to recognize the signs. Uh, can you take us through the, through those, please? The symptoms to look out for? Yeah, sure. Well, malaria is a dread disease. And as you say, sub-Saharan Africa is a real big hotspot for it. There's a good few million cases of it every year. And the death rate does range between about half a million and one million per year. But the vast majority of those deaths are in young children. 70% of the deaths from malaria are young kiddies. And in fact, more recent research shows why those kids seem to be more vulnerable. And it would appear that many of these children, they actually are born to mothers who catch malaria while they're pregnant. And although the malaria parasite doesn't spread into the baby when it's inside the mum, it does go to the placenta, where the baby and the mother are exchanging nutrients and waste products in the uterus to keep the baby nourished and growing. And the, the presence of malaria in the uterus seems to lead to the baby thinking that the malaria parasite is a friend, not a foe. 
So once the baby is born, initially it has antibodies from its mother to protect it, but once those antibodies wash out of the bloodstream by six months of age, then the baby becomes very vulnerable to malaria, and because the immune system doesn't regard malaria as a nasty thing, when the baby then catches malaria, it gets a much worse dose than someone who didn't have a mother who caught malaria when she was pregnant, and that's why we think so many of these children then die, because mm. they get very severe disease. But it does cause very, very high temperatures, it causes your uh, red blood cells to become infected and then break open and this leads to anemia and also the red blood cells become sticky so they stick around your blood vessels especially in the brain producing a condition called cerebral malaria and this can cause people to go into a coma and the complication and death rate from that condition is very high indeed. Mm-hmm. Let's go to um, it's JR in Pretoria you have a question about mosquitoes here. Hey? JR good morning um, your question yeah. No, we can't hear a word you're saying. Uh, let's see if we can get a better line. We're putting you better on, back on hold. Ross in Thornton, hi. Hello, yes. I was very impressed a few months ago when Dr. Chris had a lot to say about farts, and I thought this was incredible. It should have been published in The Lancet. But my question is a sort of second chance to, to, to fame for the doctor, and although he's well-known already. And I was working in this country oh, a while back, and people were almost paranoid about the, the, the germs which were carried uh, by feces, so much so that toilet paper was rationed. Oh, goodness me, one, one couldn't believe what was happening. But I, I would suggest that perhaps uh, the, the germs that are carried in spit and sputum um, are far more dangerous than those which are carried by, um, by poo. Okay, Chris, comment? Well, I think it comes down to a relative thing because there are some pretty nasty things that can leave the body via the back end. Uh, These include viruses like norovirus and poliovirus and we we all know what the consequences of those are. On the one Mm. hand, very bad nausea, vomiting and diarrhoea and on the other hand, even as severe as paralysis. But you're right, there are other nasties that leave the body at the other end and tuberculosis, although not a virus, it's a bacterial infection, affects probably a third of the world population now and TB will kill thousands of people today, a good proportion of them, perhaps 70-80% of those deaths will occur in the sub-Saharan portion of Africa and you know the mining industry someone did a survey the other day that they published in the New England Journal of Medicine and they found that maybe 9 out of 10 miners in sub-Saharan Africa is suffering with TB. TB also massively exaggerates the, the risks in HIV and so wherever you see a lot of HIV you see a lot of TB as well. So you're absolutely right, there are nasty things that come out of both ends, but I don't think we want to have a competition to see which is the worst. <laughs> I think you can you can come off pretty badly from either end, to be honest, but it's a great point, Ross. Thank you. Lovely point, yeah, even though we've lost our appetite. Thank you, Ross. Let's go to JR in Brooklyn. Hi. Hi. Uh, morning, Reddy. Morning, Chris. Mm. Um, with regard to mosquitoes, né, if they would wipe them all out in the world, uh, what would the impact be? I know malaria uh, would be gone, but would there be a negative impact on the world and uh, on the human race as a whole? Yes, you're mm. spot on the money to be thinking about the wider picture here because on the one hand, as humans, we tend to focus on individual things and think, well, if we just remove that problem, then everything will be cushy and fine. But the problem is that the world we live in is a dense web of many connections. It's like a spider web where one thing is connected to many others and if you cut one of the strands of your spider web, 
then the web can change shape subtly. And the web we live in is a very delicate one. And so if we just went along and removed one mosquito, would that make a dramatic difference? Well, it will make a difference. But as the inventors of the mosquito genetic modification study pointed out on, on the radio here in Britain the other day, well, actually, there are many species of mosquito, not just one. And it's only a small number of mosquitoes that are capable of carrying uh, serious infections that pose a threat to humans. So if we were to target just those mosquitoes, there would be plenty of other mosquitoes still left in the population and in the world, and which would probably step into the territory vacated by the mosquitoes that spread these nasty diseases. But they don't regard this as something that would be a permanent and irreversible thing. We wouldn't eradicate these mosquitoes permanently. What we would be doing is dramatically crashing the population for a little while and this would break the cycle because malaria and mosquitoes are interdependent. You need people mm -hmm. who are infected with malaria to be infectious to the mosquito. You need infectable mosquitoes around at the right time and then uninfected people to give the bug to. So if you massively reduce the number of mosquitoes who can pick up the infection, in the meantime, the people all become uninfectious. No one's got malaria at the time. Then when the mosquito numbers come back up, there's no one to bite who's got malaria to infect the mosquito. So you break the transmission cycle. And that's really what they're aiming to do, not to totally remove the mosquitoes irreversibly. But you're right to query mm. and question the impact of, of just removing a whole species because nature is a delicate thing. And if yeah. we mess with it, then there are risks. And of course, everything is so interlinked and connected, as you've said. Thank you, JR, for that very important question. Eunice and Felicia, I see you coming back in just a moment. Talk Radio 702 and 567 Cape Talk. The Naked Scientist. 021-446-0567-011-8830702. Let's go to Felicia. Hi there, Felicia. Hi, Rudy. I've just got a question for our Leonard Naked Scientist. What causes itching on the skin? You know, that sensation that comes with it. Okay. Uh, I'm not talking about makeup, ne? Just the itching. Yeah, like he would know what that is, Felicia, <laughs> in Afrikaans. I don't even know. What are you talking about? Like, not, you're yeah, just talking about an itch. Uh, when you don't have eczema, you don't have a wound, nothing, nothing but your skin no, just, just itches. Just skin, just skin itching when you're least expecting. Because you know our belief, when, you, when you're itching on the palm of your hand, you're going to be moneyed and stuff Ooh. like that. <laughs> <Whoa>. <laughs> 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 okay. Nice. okay. All right. <laughs> well, it turns out that itching is subserved or controlled, transmitted, through a certain population of nerve cells. We have a dedicated hotline to head office with a small population of itch-specific cells. These are sensory nerve cells. They look just like the other sensory nerve cells that supply every part of our body and supply temperature and pain sensation and fine touch and pinprick and that kind of thing, except these cells are only responsible for transmitting the itch sensation. And scientists in recent years have discovered them and they now know how they talk to your spinal cord and how the messages about itch are relayed to your brain. Why we have them is that they're there to defend you because many things that might try to attack your skin, crawl into your skin, bite you, parasites, are going to cause a tickle or an itch sensation. And these nerves are there like your defenders. They're an alarm bell saying pay attention to a certain part of your body mm. because something there is irritating you that might give you a disease. And so uh, that, that's why you actually have these itchy sensations. And the way you stop an itch is to scratch it. And that makes sense from a neuroscientist point of view as well because when you... Uh, look at these nerve cells and how they work. They're turned off by stimulating pain nerve cells. 
so the pain transmitting nerves turn off the itch nerves and when you scratch yourself actually what you're doing is initiating or eliciting a small amount of pain which inhibits the itch sensation and turns it off so it's a bit like the fire alarm goes off and then you press the reset button when you have a good scratch but it makes mm -hmm. you pay attention to that part of your body and effectively you're getting rid of a parasite or something that could be harming you or damaging that part of your body Christine wants to know, uh, can an anaesthetic cause a blood clot in some patients? Uh, well, Christine is right to, to ask this question because, yes, anaesthesia as a process can cause a thrombus. Uh, what we mean by this is when a person is immobile for a long period of time, this can lead to blood stasis. In other words, when blood is flowing through blood vessels, it can pull or collect or flow more sluggishly in a part of the body that's immobile for a long period of time. Because normally, blood flows back to your heart along your veins and it's helped by a bit of a push from behind. There's pressure behind the, uh, in the vein, pushing the blood along. But also, there's a very important concept of what we call the muscle pump. Your veins run close to the surface of your skin and around all of your muscles. And when you contract a muscle, it becomes shorter and fatter. And this squeezes the vein, reducing the volume in that part of the vein, so the blood has to be pushed along. And because there are valves in veins that keep blood flowing only in one direction, it pushes the blood out of the vein. When you're anaesthetised, you don't move, and usually surgeons will ask the anaesthetist to paralyse a person with a muscle relaxing agent so that they can also put them on a ventilator so the person's breathing can be controlled. So this muscle pump is completely blocked, and as a result, the flow of blood through the body can become sluggish under certain circumstances and in certain people or un under certain circumstances that sluggish flow of blood can lead to or increase the chances of the blood forming a clot or a thrombus and usually this is in the deep veins in the legs usually it's very trivial and you would only have very small clots formed and these would probably be washed up to the lungs and filtered out but occasionally they can become very big thrombi and that coupled with immobility mm. in bed after you recovered from your surgery or while you recover from your surgery this can lead to these thrombi being even bigger or then themselves uh, beginning to form because of immobility for the same reason so surgery is a big risk and the biggest risk of all is orthopedic surgery because usually the limbs are the, are the target of an orthopedic surgeon's handiwork and he does or she does a great job but then the limb has to be immobilized for a while afterwards and this leads to these thrombi forming so it's very important to have to the doctors are aware of this patients are aware of this and mm. precautions are taken to stop them happening Shirley in Puckwood hi I'd like to know what trans fats are, hydrogenated fats, and partially inverted sugar syrup. Oh, a lot of questions in there. Uh, well, fats, first of all, fats are hydrocarbons, which means that what you've got is a long chain of carbon atoms with hydrogen sticking off of them. And at one end of the fat is what we call a fatty acid or a carboxylic acid group, and that's a carbon atom with two oxygens hanging off, and one of the oxygens also got a hydrogen stuck to it and fatty acids can be linked together to form fats in the body so you have three fatty acids and they're linked to a molecule called glyco um, glycerol and this produces a triacylglyceride and that's how we store fat so when you look at your adipose tissue when we get flabby that's triacylglycerides mm. in the fat cells now the fats themselves if you look at the links between the carbon atoms they're all what we call single bonds except where there are double bonds. And when you have a double bond, that's called an unsaturated bond, because you could add something to that chain and saturate it. 
So we have fats which are saturated fats where all the carbon atoms are linked by a single bond and then you have unsaturated fats where you have the odd double bond in there. If there's one double bond that's called a monounsaturate and that's like olive oil and if you have multiple double bonds that's a polyunsaturate and that's other kinds of vegetable oil. Now, those sorts of double bonds are kinky, and I don't mean in the kind of leather whips and chain sense. I mean what they do is they have a different angle in the bond to other parts of the chain, so they kink the chain of carbon atoms. Mm -hmm. And because these chains are kinky and bent, they can't get so close together as they are with a saturated fat, and therefore they tend to be an oil at room temperature, whereas saturated fats can get very close together, so they pack very densely, and that makes a, a solid, um, like lard, at room temperature. Now, if you want to make olive oil or something into a spread that you could spread onto your toast, in order to make it go solid, if you have too many of these double bonds, then you just get an oil. You don't want that. So you can instead saturate this and hydrogenate it in order to make some of those double bonds into single bonds so you get a saturated fat. And that's what the manufacturers do. They react hydrogen with those bonds and you end up, instead of with unsaturated bonds, saturated bonds, and then you get a solid. So that's how they make hydrogenated vegetable fats. You add some hydrogen to some of these double bonds and make the chains less kinky, so they form a solid instead. Uh, the, the glucose question, sugars come in a number of different forms, and you have things like glucose, you have things like fructose, and because they are isomers of each other, in other words, there are the same uh, chemicals, effectively the same atoms in there, but arranged slightly differently, uh, you can turn one into the other with the right chemical catalyst called an enzyme. And so what you can do is to turn uh, a sugar solution in from one into the other using invitase, uh, which is an enzyme that swaps things around. And so uh, that's what some people do, because the relative sweetness of fructose is much greater than the sweetness of glucose. So you can actually make things taste a lot sweeter than they really are by converting some of the glucose into fructose, and that's an invert sugar. Thank you very much, Shirley. Thanks indeed. Let's go to, um, is it Mary in Belleville? Hi. Good morning. Good morning to you. Uh, I want to know about parasites, neurocystic psychosis in the brain. Parasites in the brain? Yes. Mm -hmm. Hello, Mary. Well, there's a number of different um, avenues that are being explored here, but one of the best understood and most studies is toxoplasmosis. And toxoplasmosis is a parasite which is carried by the domestic cats. I think also wild cats as well, but certainly the domestic cat plays a very important role in the life cycle of this parasite. It, it has its sexual re or reproductive phase of its life cycle in the intestine of a cat. And this is where the male and female parasites mate and produce progeny. And these progeny come out of the cat and they settle into the environment wherever the cat goes to the loo, usually in the garden somewhere. This means that the soil contains infectious forms of these parasites. And when other animals like mice come along or things that um, might snuffle around on the ground, they can pick up the parasite and it then infects them and, and it goes out of their intestine and into all their tissues in their body. And then when those mice get eaten by the cat, then it picks up the parasite from the mouse it's just eaten, and this completes the life cycle. But mm. where does the parasite go in the mouse? Well, the answer is it goes to every tissue, including the brain. And when it goes to the brain, we think it has the ability to make the mice change their behaviour. It makes the mice less fearful of bright light, so they're more likely to come out in the daytime. And mice 
lose their ability to be scared of cats. How weird is that? A mouse Whoa. infected with toxoplasmosis is no longer scared of the smell of cats. Normally, mice are terrified from birth of the smell of cats, and these mice with toxoplasmosis actively avoid um, being frightened of cats, so they're more likely to get caught. So we think that this is the parasite manipulating the behaviour of the mouse so that it's more likely to get caught and complete the life cycle of the parasite. Obvious question, does the same thing happen in humans? Yes. There is some evidence suggesting that in countries where uh, meat is less well cooked and therefore the likelihood of picking up toxoplasmosis is higher, and I'm thinking of France, where about 80% of people actually are infected with toxoplasmosis, does this lead to an increase in, say, um, presentation to mental hospitals, altered behaviour? Some people suggest that the French are terrible drivers, <laughs> and this is real. The French are terrible drivers because there's so many of them are infected with toxoplasmosis. But there is some evidence linking mental illness and, and schizophrenia and that kind of thing with toxoplasmosis infection. And interestingly, the same drugs that treat those mental illnesses are toxic to toxoplasmosis. So it does kind of fit together. Interesting. Beggy in Pretoria. I think we've had this question before, but it won't hurt to do it again. Beggy, hi. Hi. Well, we, we know the benefit of sneezing. Uh, this is typical benefit of sneezing. But... You know, yawning use, do, do people yawn when they're sleeping? And has there been a, a, a benefit of yawning that has been... What's like, the benefit? Okay. Okay, well, there was an interesting study that got done by a guy called Gordon Gallup, who was at the State University of New York. And they were showing students videos that had people yawning in the videos and they were counting without the students realise realising how many times the people who were watching the videos yawned in sympathy with the people in the videos yawning. <laughs> and just under normal circumstances it was about a hundred percent. So yawning is very infectious between one person and another. So there must be some kind of social value to yawning. That was their theory. They then said, right, okay, what we want you to do is breathe only through your mouth and they did the experiment on a different group of people or on the same people, it didn't really matter. And then in the same time, they, they then repeated the experiment asking people to hold a cold compress onto their forehead. Now, what those two different situations do, the cold compress cools the head very dramatically. And in those people, there was no yawning or very little yawning in sympathy with the videos. But when people breathed only through their mouth, there was, again, very high levels of yawning consistent with the, the films. And therefore, one suggests that yawning has some kind of brain cooling effect. So how do we put all this together? Well, they speculated in this paper a few years back that what's happening is that when you are in a social group and it's late at night and one person's getting a bit tired, then this means that your brain temperature could be rising because we know that fatigue and tiredness increases brain temperature. If you have high brain temperature, you can cool your brain and restore your alertness by yawning. Well, if you're in a social group and one person's getting tired... Uh, it's likely that everyone's getting tired. And so, therefore, if the yawning is infectious, this increases everyone's alertness, and therefore you're less likely to get eaten by a wild animal. Chris, we'll chat next week. Have a lovely weekend. Likewise. Thanks, everyone. Ta-ta. See you soon. Have a great Bye-bye. weekend. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.